title of my message this morning is What Child Is This? What Child Is This? I'm excited to bring this message to you guys this morning. Um, and as uh, just by way of introduction, uh, last week, Kevin began to talk about how we're entering to a season of Advent. So the church, Big C Church, is celebrating Advent right now. And usually we go through a couple Advent sermons, but this year we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, we're going to be taking you guys through uh, some various uh, carols throughout this season. Generally, Advent is a season of waiting and longing and wanting the Messiah to come about. And that this time, we count down the days until Jesus' birth. We count down the days until Christmas. We remember his first coming, and we look forward to his second. But ordinarily, in our culture, this great desire for Jesus' second coming to come about isn't something that we normally really focus on. That's not something that our culture really uh, thinks about a lot. Uh, because most of the time, life is good, and things are easy, and we're happy, and we're safe. And all of that was true until 2020 really started to come along strong. Because of the pandemic, we have a greater understanding of our mortality and our fragility. Because of the political climate, many believers feel as though they're politically homeless. Because of civil unrest, we have a greater awareness of racial injustice, of broken systems, and wrongs committed against refugees and those who are poor. We're weary of quarantine isolation, of wildfires, of hurricanes, rioting, and the like. We need to be reminded of the true purpose and intention behind Christmas. And so beginning last week and ending at the very end of this month, we're going to take you guys through uh, some of the biblical foundations for various Christmas carols, various Christmas songs. We've entitled this series, Stories of the Carols. And my carol this morning, as I said before, is What Child Is This? This song was popularized in modern times by Josh Groban, and it's a wonderful song pointing us to the Christ child. We're going to close our service today actually by singing this song. Um, and so be, as, uh, by way of introduction uh, for the song, I want to kind of tell you a little background about this song. This original melody was called Greensleeves, the melody uh, to the song. And the original melody had nothing to do with religion at all. It was created around 1580. And traditionally, Green Sleeves is thought to have been written by a man whose love for a woman was spurned. He purchased many things for her and he loved her, but she didn't love him back. And there's a few more interesting tidbits to that story, but I'll let you do your own research on that. Uh, but the point is that the original melody was not Christian in origin at all. But in 1865, William Chatterton Dix of England would pen the great carol that we will sing this morning. He was a manager at an insurance company who loved traditional English folk songs. And in 1865, when William was 29 years old, he suffered from a near-fatal illness. And after going through that near-fatal illness, he experienced depression. And at the end of that entire experience, he was dramatically changed because he was spiritually awakened. God awakened his heart. God brought him to spiritual life. He began to read the Bible and to craft various hymns. Altogether, he wrote over 40 hymns to celebrate both Easter and Christmas. Again, there are several popular songs uh, using the melody of Green Sleeves, but this one William Dix would use to create his carol. And in this song, William captures the glory and the humility 
of the Christ child. He describes the angels singing over the king of kings and the babe being surrounded by shepherds as he's sleeping. There's a great glory described in this song in a humble nature fully on display in Jesus's company and his humanity in his person. And it is those two ideas that we want to explore this morning. So read with me again, Matthew 22, verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. My first point is this point, Jesus is fully human. Jesus is fully human. The son of David. The setup to this passage is so amazing when you look at all of the events that unfold to get us to verse 41 of Matthew chapter 22. You see, this week for Jesus begins with his triumphal entry into Jerusalem as he's coming to be celebrated and lauded as the true king that he is. And he enters this holy city to great adoration, to great praise. He cleanses the temple and the Pharisees begin to question his authority, how he could do all of the things that he was doing. And Jesus, once his authority is questioned, he tells a series of parables. All of these were aimed at getting the Pharisees an opportunity to understand that they needed to turn to him. And so his final parable was the parable of the wedding feast. And this was about a king who had a feast for his son's wedding. And he invited a ton of people to come to the wedding, but those people whom he invited didn't come. They didn't want to come. Verse 5 of uh, Matthew chapter 22 says, But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. You see, after disposing of those who didn't want to come, the king invited other guests to celebrate his son's wedding. And so this time he was going to invite those who were good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But there was one man with no wedding garment on. And the king and his attendants bound that man and cast him into outer darkness. Jesus says, many are called, but few are chosen. In verse 14, all of this is a picture of the Jews as a people being invited to relationship with God. And yet so many refused to come to him. And so what did God do? God went beyond the Jews. God went to the Gentiles. God called both Jews and Gentiles to himself. And so even in that lofty group of people who may have responded to the call, some of them did not repent, although they heard Jesus calling them. They heard God's spirit calling them. And that way, they were not wearing wedding clothes. And consequently, they were unfit for the wedding party. You see, what they needed were the right garments. They needed the righteousness of God. But that person, that man who was not dressed appropriately, didn't have that. You see, at the conclusion of these stories, the Pharisees were very upset with Jesus because they perceived that he was talking about them. And so they sought to entangle him in his words. They wanted the Romans to kill him, so they asked him a trick question. They, they held up a coin and they said, uh, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? 
And Jesus, you know, just like the master teacher that he is, he says, Who's, whose likeness and inscription is on that coin? And they say Caesar's. And Jesus says, well, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God that which is God's. And then after they walk away, the Sadducees, they come up to Jesus. And, you know, the Sadducees were those who, who didn't believe in the resurrection. Um, and so they ask him a question and they say, there was a woman who married this guy and the guy died. And then the guy had a brother. And so she married the brother because that's what the law called for. And then that brother died. And then brother after brother died and she married brother after brother after brother. And they finally asked Jesus the question, when the resurrection takes place, whose wife will she be? Isn't that nonsensical to believe in the resurrection in the first place? Like this sounds incestuous. Surely she won't be married to all of those guys in heaven. And again, Jesus, like the master teacher that he is, he says, once you get into eternity, there is no marriage in heaven. We'll be just like the angels. That institution, after we die, will cease to exist. And so the Sadducees feel like, man, like we've got him. But Jesus answered the question perfectly. He understands all truth. And so finally, a lawyer, someone who was a Pharisee, who was well-practiced in the law, comes up to Jesus and he says to him, what's the greatest commandment? And he's hoping that Jesus is going to say, you know, the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament, those are so valuable and so important. Like, we have to follow those. And if he says that, then he's neglected the Ten Commandments. He's neglected so many of the other commandments of God. They're hoping to trick him one final time and get him this time. The first question didn't work. The second question didn't work. Surely this question will work and they can get him. And Jesus says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with everything. And he says, the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. He masterfully answers the question again. And then after he does that, after he answers this third question, he turns everything on his head and he says, well, let me ask you a question. And that's where verse 41 comes from that we read. He says, whose son is the Christ? You see, the Pharisees immediately responded to Jesus' question with the right answer. They say that he's the son of David. They give the proper answer. They understood that the Messiah had to be the son of David. And in verse 42, they acknowledge that. The Messiah must be a child and a descendant of that great king. In the Old Testament, there are many covenants described. And a covenant is just a promise between God and man. And one of the most famous of those covenants is the divinic covenant. And in the divinic covenant, which is in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17, God makes a promise with David that one of his descendants would reign forever on the throne of Israel. God makes that promise, a massive promise in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. And so all of the Jews of Jesus' day understood this prophecy. While they were under the heel of the Roman Empire, they longed for David's son to reign over them. They longed for the Messiah to deliver them from their enemies and to establish the kingdom that they wanted. You see, verse 42 of our text tells us that the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders knew that the Messiah had to be the son of God, the son of David, rather. But what they refused to believe was that Jesus was the son of David. But this is abundantly obvious by so many things that he does, that he is indeed the son of David. 
You see, Jesus' earthly father was Joseph, and Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. This is what Luke tells us in Luke chapter 2, verse 4. Multiple times in the New Testament, various people proclaim Jesus to be one of David's descendants. For example, a Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, verse 22 says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. And then these two blind men who couldn't see, who wanted Jesus to heal them, as they heard that Jesus was passing by, they said, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And then during Jesus' triumphal entry, as we talked about a little bit earlier, when he was coming into the holy city, there were all of these crowds that cried out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They cry out that Jesus is the son of David. You see, they knew who he was. And yet these religious leaders, these Pharisees refused to believe it. He truly was the son of David. But what significance does that have? What's the big deal with our Lord being David's son? First of all, let's acknowledge who David himself was. David is the best described and the most complex character in the Old Testament. The only person in scripture who has more pages dedicated to him is Jesus. You see, from 1 Samuel 16 through the 1 Kings 2, we know everything from David's call to the monarchy to his death. We even have his words immortalized for us in the Psalms. And there are references about David in almost every subsequent Old Testament book. David is relatable to us in so many ways. You see, he wasn't the obvious choice to become king after Saul. He was short and his brothers were tall. He had beautiful eyes and was handsome but the people wanted their king to have more than just that. You see, after his anointing, he endured victory and defeat. He faced jealousy and adoration. He was so utterly human. He was brave and he was weak. He was like us. He called his people to faithfulness to God and he failed to obey God on multiple occasions. He truly was quite human. See, David was a great man. There are so many things to admire about David, like his faith and his loyalty, his courage, his skill in battle, his success as a leader, and his giftedness as a, music as a musician, just to name a few of those character traits that he had. But I think that his greatest attribute was his willingness to overlook other sins, but not his own. You see, we frequently see him give his enemies a second chance. When Saul was chasing David and wanted to kill him, there was two times that David had him cornered and he could have killed him, but he didn't. You see, when Abner was treacherous after Saul died and Abner joined Saul's son's rebellion against David's kingdom, David did not hold that against Abner. But when Abner decided to come back into the fold with David, he welcomed him. He brought him back in. And you see, when, when Saul's crippled son, Mephibosheth, was around, he very easily could have been the heir to the throne because he was his father's son. And what a normal king would have done at that time was to kill every heir. But what David does is gives him a house and takes care of him. 
and provides for him. You see, when his own son Absalom rebelled against him, David pardoned all of those who joined in Absalom's rebellion. He understood forgiveness. He loved his enemies. He had great tenderness towards his fellow man. But even though he forgave others of their faults and sins, he wasn't soft on sin in general. He took an honest look at himself and acknowledged when he was wrong on multiple occasions. After Nathan rebuked him for his adultery and his murder, David repented of his actions and he proclaimed that he sinned against the Lord, 2 Samuel 12, verse 13. When he was rebuked by Joab for loving his treacherous son more than his loyal servants, David does what Joab asked him to do, 2 Samuel verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 1 through 8. And finally, after David took a foolish census to puff up his pride, he later confessed, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. You see, he never blamed someone else for his sins. He didn't make excuses and he called his actions what they were. Every time I just quoted him, he called it sin. He wasn't as concerned as much with how his actions affected his kingdom as much as how his actions affected his God. That was always his primary concern. And we live in an age where people refuse to take responsibility for their actions. From politicians to athletes to other celebrities, no one is responsible for their public sins. And yet this man, perhaps the most famous man in all of the Old Testament, was willing to accept correction and to change accordingly. You see, David was the man after God's heart because he hated sin, but he loved to forgive it, just like God. He was weak, but he was always striving for faithfulness. David was so human. Before the Messiah was born, many may have thought that this Messiah would be surrounded by, by, by opulence. You know, when I think about that, like I, I think about, um, so, so before I say this, this might sound weird because you're like, Theo, you, you think about like uh, medieval France? I do because I was a history major. Uh, so when, when I think about like splendor and grandeur and opulence, I, I think about King Louis XIV and King Louis XIV built the Palace of Versailles and the Palace of Versailles is utterly beautiful. There were two thousand rooms in this palace. This palace had, had, has fountains and has gardens and it has a hall of mirrors that is 230 feet long and has 350 mirrors in this hall. This palace is, is opulent. It's magnificent. And when you think about the Messiah, when you think about God in the flesh, when you think about the God who made everything that is, you would naturally think that he would be born in that type of place in a place that was magnificent because he's deserving of it. But you see, our God is humble. He became a man. Sam Storms has written these words in his book, Pleasures Evermore. He said, he was conceived by the union of divine grace and human disgrace. He who breathed the breath of life into the first man is now himself a man breathing his first breath. The king of kings, now sleeping 
in a cow pen. The creator of oceans and seas and rivers afloat in the womb of his mother. God sucking his thumb. The alpha and omega learning his multiplication tables. He was once surrounded by the glorious stereophonic praise of adoring angels. Now hears the lowing of cattle, the bleeding of sheep, the stammering of bewildered shepherds. He who spoke the universe into being now coos and cries. Omniscient deity counting his toes. From the robes of eternal glory to the rags of swaddling clothes. The omnipresent spirit whose being fills the galaxies confined to the womb of a peasant girl. Infinite power learning to crawl. And it was the humanity of Jesus that is the point of the title, Son of David. Jesus, though God, was fully man. He wasn't part God and part man. He wasn't mostly God and somewhat man. He wasn't 90% God and 10% man. You see, Jesus was 100% man and 100% God, fully. He was a son. He was born in a manger. He was humble, approachable. He slept. He became hungry. He knew thirst. He was passionate. He knew pain. He wept. He could be embraced. His feet could be washed and kissed. He experienced joy. He had a soul and a spirit. He became like us. He became one of us. He knows what it's like to feel a crown of thorns being driven into his flesh. He knows what the whip and the spear feel like. The creator became a creature. And I hope that that, that thought fills you with great joy. You see, he sympathizes with our weaknesses and he understands our temptations inside and out, yet he never gave in. He never sinned. He was the perfect man. J.I. Packer once said, the Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. And so my first point is, Jesus is fully man. Present tense. And my second point, my last point, is this. Jesus is fully God. He's fully God. Notice verse 43 in Matthew 22. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. The son of God. Not only was Jesus David's son, but he was also God's son. 
And that title, Son of God, is just as exalted as Son of David. And yet, there have been so many people throughout history that refuse to understand and accept the divinity of Christ. I'll give you just a few examples. The, the, the Pharisaic Jews of Jesus' day said that he cast out demons by the power of demons, by the prince of demons. Julian the Apostate, who was a Roman emperor, he said, Jesus has now been celebrated about 300 years, having done nothing in his lifetime worthy of fame, unless anyone thinks that a very great work to heal lame and blind people and exercise demoniacs in the villages of Bethsaida and Bethany. Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was an American essayist, uh, who is not a believer, he said these words. He said, Jesus is the most perfect of all the men that have yet appeared on the earth. Napoleon called Jesus the emperor of love. Renan, the French atheist, said that Jesus was the greatest among the sons of men. But you see, Jesus was more than just a man. He was more than just the highest example of men. The groups who denied that Jesus was God are almost innumerable. I could give you a list, pages long. It is always this claim that Jesus has that is the one that is the most in dispute. And it causes the highest level of angst among people. You see, it frustrated the people that Jesus was talking to for them to acknowledge that he was from the kingly line. That frustrated them. But they hated when he said he was God's only begotten son. And that was his point in verses 43 through 45 of Matthew 22. David's future descendant who would be a king has to be more than just a human king. He must also be God. The Lord God Almighty said to my Lord, King David, that he will put his enemies under his feet and establish a monarchy that would not be rivaled. They needed to understand that hundreds of years ago, God prophesied through David that the future king which was to come from his loins would be very God of very God. And so when current Jews read Psalm 110, which is where uh, Jesus is quoting from in uh, verses uh, 441 through 46, when current Jews read Psalm 110, many of their scholars denied that David was the author of this psalm because the psalm doesn't explicitly state that. They also denied that the psalm is messianic in the first place. They, don't, they say it's not really about the Messiah. And then the last thing that they deny is that the Christian claim that Jesus is Lord is true at all. They totally deny that Jesus is Lord. But you see, the problem with taking that position, denying all three of those things, is to deny all three of those things is to call Jesus himself a liar. You see, Jesus says that David wrote this psalm. And Jesus affirms that this psalm is focused on the Messiah. And Jesus says that this psalm proves that the Messiah must be God. You see, to deny any of that is to say that he is a liar. And if he's a liar, that he's not the highest example of human virtue, as so many people would say. He's not what the unbelieving people say he is. He's not the great man that even those who don't trust in him will say that he is. He's not those things if he's lying all the time. You see, all of those kind words that they use to describe him are simply not true. 
And so the highest level of human virtue would never lie about who he is and what he came to do. Jesus was born to be the son of God. Hebrews chapter one, beginning in verse one, the word says this. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Jesus is God's son. He is God himself. I love this, this quote by Spurgeon. Spurgeon once said, O son of man, I know not which to admire most, thine height of glory or thy depths of misery. He is seated at the right hand of God. And this means that he's co-equal with the father. He reigns on the father's throne. He has all power and all authority. His commands are to be obeyed without question. And he is the only true absolute monarch, more powerful than King Louis ever was. He directs all creatures. He can heal all creatures. He has the power to raise the dead and to forgive sin. He can be anywhere and everywhere at once. He is loving and holy and truthful. He receives worship and can be called all the same names as God. His enemies needed to be placed under his feet. And this conveys the idea of everything being in subjection to Christ. All of his enemies will be his footstool. The image of a king who puts his heel on the neck of his defeated adversary is in view here. He is the undisputed ruler. Our Lord poses a question that was too complicated for the Pharisees to answer. They couldn't understand how David's son could also be David's Lord. But Jesus understood. He explained the mystery. They had been trying to ask Christ questions to stump him and to puzzle him, but in the end, they were the ones left wanting. They were the ones with no answers. Their knowledge was limited, but his was infinite. Peter tells us this in Acts chapter 2, verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, 
He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of all that, we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And so as I close, I want to invite you to make God's covenant with David, God's covenant with you. This isn't my original idea. This is God's idea. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 55, beginning of verse 1, Isaiah says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. That promise that God made to David that he would be his God forever and he would establish an eternal kingdom is God's promise to you. He says, come to him, receive him, trust in him, put all of your weight in your full reliance on Jesus. Would you come to him today? The mercy and the faithfulness that guarantees David an eternal kingdom also guarantees perfect love and peace and holiness and joy for you. God wants you to come to him empty-handed, bringing nothing of your own. You see, he promises to fulfill his oath that he will forever treat you the way he treated David. He will never turn away from doing you good. Hear Jesus' words in Revelation chapter 22, beginning in verse 16. Jesus, in the last book of the Bible, just before that book closes, he says these words. I, Jesus have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires 
take the water of life without price. Jesus bids you to come. For those of you that know him, he bids you to return to him. He wants to be your number one priority. He wants to be first. He wants to be the first thing you think about when you wake up and the last thing you think about when you go to bed. He's deserving of all that and more. He bids you to come. John Bunyan wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, which was history's second best-selling book behind only the Bible. And he wrote a couple powerful words to encourage us to come to Christ. When John Bunyan read John chapter 6, verse 37, like any good Puritan, he tried to extract as much truth out of that verse as possible. John 6, 37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. In response to that verse, that passage, Bunyan writes these words. And it is, as it were, the sum of all promises. Neither can any objection be made upon the unworthiness that you find in yourself that this promise will not assoil. But I am a great sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am an old sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am a hard-hearted sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am a backsliding sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have served Satan all my days, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against light, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have no good thing to bring with me, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. This promise was provided to answer all objections and does answer them. 